Welcome to Senequanon News. I'm your anchor, Persona Nangrata. Our card today goes over the Alex Jones defamation suit strategy, the extinction of reasonability, and why inflation is bad, even if it's a small target. Strategy is very important in lawsuits. The right strategy can put you over the top or prevent miscarriages of justice from unscrupulous attorneys and judges. Let's take a look at the Alex Jones defamation lawsuit in Connecticut. But before we get into that, let's first go back to the Alex Jones defamation lawsuit in Austin, Texas. And if you remember or recall, Alex Jones was ruled guilty in that defamation lawsuit uh, by default judgment. The judge said he did not provide all the requested documents that the attorneys requested for discovery and gave them a default judgment, thereby depriving him of his rights to a, a fair trial. Okay, he didn't have the chance to question his accusers to cross-examine their claims and refute their arguments. He was denied due process. Now, when you move to from Austin, a liberal city in Texas, to Connecticut, a liberal state in the Union, you can pretty much guarantee they're going to take the same tack, all right, because it worked before, right? Um, so how would you combat that? What strategy would you use? Before we go over that, the lawyer for Alex Jones in Connecticut seemed to do pretty good, but he had a bad strategy. He did good at refuting the points and, uh, and com- combating as much as he could the kangaroo court that that place was and getting information out, even, the, even after they ruled for a default judgment. However, if you would, the problem is, even if you have good performance, the best you can hope for with a bad strategy is to lose with dignity. Okay, if you have a better strategy, and I would purport that a better strategy would be to get the discovery on the plaintiffs. In these in these lawsuits, you have that right, you have that privilege as a lawyer. Just because somebody is suing you doesn't mean you don't have the ability to get discovery on your plaintiffs and related parties. And that's what they should have done. A good lawyer would have seen what happened in Austin and said, okay, that's definitely going to happen in Connecticut or there's a very good likelihood that it is. So my best strategy is you know, a mutual destruction strategy on that. I've got to ask for so much discovery and uh, that they can't provide that they can't comply. And that they should really rule a default for my client because of non-compliance of discovery on their end. And this this should have been, I mean, really, this is Alex Jones' wet dream come to life. One of the plaintiffs was a retired FBI agent. He was not retired during Sandy Hook. Alex Jones, who's been trying to get, you know, who's really good at getting these documents as a reporter now has access to full discovery of the FBI. And and they didn't take advantage of that. That just blows my mind. And if you're pretty good at making arguments, you could get all kinds of discovery from the FBI. 
And that would have been a beautiful thing. That would have been great publicity, great bad publicity for the FBI. That would have gone a long ways in this trial, especially to removing that FBI agent from the plaintiff list. And it would have, he could have done a lot of good if they would have done that. That would have been a much better strategy. And also, the problem is in the trial, if you saw it, I don't know if they, I didn't see the whole thing, but all I ever saw was people talking about the finances of Alex Jones. I didn't see anybody talking about the finances of any of the plaintiffs. And in a defamation trial, the plaintiffs have to prove they lost money. How did they do that? I didn't see any of them take the stand. I didn't see how any plaintiff lost money. They talk about pain and suffering and punitive damages, and, and the FBI agent said his life was threatened. Well, FBI agents' lives are threatened all the time. They're a crime-fighting organization. But they didn't put him on the stand to find out if his claim was valid or credible in any shape or form, which they could have done. They could have found out, well, if it, if it was credible, did you report it in the, inside the ranks of the FBI? Did you escalate it? Did you report it to local law enforcement? I mean, he, he just made those claims. That doesn't mean they're true. That doesn't mean they were credible. I mean, the, the FBI has a business of filtering out a whole crapload of claims every day. They have to go over and filter out the credible versus non-credible claims or threats. So this was a huge, uh, a huge failing. And I don't know if maybe they should have seen this coming in the prior lawsuit in Austin. I don't know. But certainly in Connecticut, they should have seen this coming. They should have prepared for this. And they should have had that strategy in place, ready to go, and getting all of that discovery. You've got to make them prove their claims. They didn't even make them prove their claims. All they let them do was sit back and take pot shot at Alex Jones's reputation. And in the end, they were able uh, to, to get in a lot of pot shots. They were able to get in some hits. And now, you know, they're, gonna, uh, they're trying to ruin him financially. They're trying to shut down InfoWars, and they may or may not succeed at that. But um, either way, it's been a huge black eye uh, for them, for Alex Jones and InfoWars. And it's been a huge victory for censorship and uh, wrong speak, and that if you say the wrong things, even if you didn't mean to, even if you make a mistake, doesn't matter if you apologize or anything else like that, they could take your life away from you. Okay? They could take away your living. They could take away your company, your work, everything. And a lot of people, I don't know if you listened to my last podcast or not, but I don't need martyrs. I need champions. And this lawsuit was set up and played out like a martyr. Except, who in their right mind is going to feel sorry for Alex Jones? He just doesn't generate that kind of sympathy. Okay? He can generate the kind of sympathy in that, oh my God, it's happening at all. But personally, very few people are going to bat an eye about Alex Jones personally suffering in this scene. And he shouldn't have to suffer. He shouldn't have been made a martyr. That was not just his doing. That was his lawyer's doing as well. And I think they did him a huge disservice. And I don't know how that ranks or what that would mean in legal terms, whether or not that was malpractice. I do not know how well any of my critiques would have played out or worked, whether they would have worked or not in that kangaroo court. 
but it certainly seemed like a much better approach to combat this thing from the outset. And in connection with that case, I had the topic of the extinction of reasonability, and that Connecticut lawsuit is a prime example of it, and that they're asking for like two and three quarters trillion dollars dollars in punitive damages. The regular uh, settlement uh, 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 award in this uh, lawsuit was already ten times the largest one in, in, in the history of defamation suits. And so now they got a uh, punitive damages that are equal to more than 50% of all the tax revenues in the entire country of the United States of America. This for a person who said some unkind words about the Sandy Hook kids and parents and families who didn't necessarily even insult them, just didn't think it was real in some cases or had somebody on to that, who said that to that, to that extent. You know what this shows? This shows the complete lack of education in society across the country and across multiple generations. There's no way you can come up with this number. Okay, this is a defamation suit, not a lottery. And uh, there's just no way you can come up with these numbers. In order to come up with these numbers, it means that you have no uh, contact with the real world. Okay? And that's what education does. It gives you some sets of principles and values so that when you look at things, you can make an educated guess as to how much such and such is worth, how much that means to someone else. And then you get a number like this and you realize, okay, there's there's no reason in these people. I mean, it's all based on how they feel. And really, it's not even about punishing Alec Jones at that point. He was already punished beyond his finances in the Austin trial. No, this is about, again, the unreasonable. These people aren't just trying to punish Alex Jones. They're trying to virtue signal to the rest of the country, the rest of the world, if they're willing to censor free speech. They're willing to hang people out to dry who aren't following the woke narrative, who aren't abiding by the woke narrative, who aren't saying the woke narratives themselves. Otherwise, you'd know this as blasphemy. And blasphemy was something we did away with our country when we founded it. It was a horrible law that had tortured and killed men for thousands of years. All the way back before biblical times, through biblical times, after biblical times, through the medieval ages, all the way up until the founding of the United States of America. People were burned at the stake, crucified on the cross for blasphemy, for not carrying the state message, for going against the church, and not supporting fully the church. For not worshiping in the church. Persecuted for your beliefs. Persecuted for not properly expressing the church's beliefs. Persecuted for reading even. Persecuted for distributing literature. That's what they get, they did away with. With the First Amendment and the Constitution of the United States. And now all of the oligopolies in the tech world. And now the justice system are bringing back blasphemy laws. Tech giants are deplatforming. Banks are debanking. Media companies are depersoning 
as well as doxing, unlikables, and so forth. So now all we got to do is we got to fight. I mean, it's the extinction of reason. You're going to have to fight to get that back. You're going to have to slap them in the face with evidence every day. All these people have is their narratives. You can dismantle their narratives with evidence. And you should do so every day. And you're probably going to get banned here and there and everywhere else. And you'll just have to find a way to keep coming back. Finding someone else to toe the line. Until we beat them back far enough. They finally can accept and swallow the truth. And that's a horrific place to realize that we've gotten to. The extinction of reason is the extinction of justice. And that's what we're seeing. Now we're going to move on to why is inflation so bad, even if it's a small target. Why is inflation bad? Inflation is bad generally because it destroys your purchasing power. What you could buy with the dollar today will only be buy you 80% in a year or two or a couple of years. Okay? So your purchasing power is always declining when the environment is inflationary. To go over a truism, the natural state of economic affairs should be deflation. Now, you're probably freaking out now because economists say that's even worse than inflation. Now, that's only true in a particular instance, and we'll go over that. But by and large, no. It's very good. Why wouldn't it be good? If inflation is destroying your purchasing power, deflation is enhancing your purchasing power. I can buy more stuff. I can buy new stuff. And that's the typical way of a good capitalistic environment. Why would prices go down anyways? Prices would go down because infrastructure improvements, therefore transporting goods and services, is cheaper. Packaging has become more efficient, so packaging is cheaper. Companies gain economies of scale. They're able to make things more efficiently on a per-item basis so they can lower the price per unit, which benefits them because they may not make as much on the individual product, but because they're able to increase the volume, it increases their profitability. And that's what drives the economy. I mean, there's a period when we were very new, our first decade or so into capitalism, which was after the Civil War, in the period of about 1872 or 3 to 1879, where our economy grew at 6.8% a year for seven years in a row. That's magnificent, okay? That is spectacular GDP. Even though we were a much smaller company, you would say, well, you know, yeah, we were much smaller, therefore the percentage growth would be higher. But I, I could tell you, you can look around all the entire world and find companies, countries, and companies just as small, as small or smaller, who don't grow year after year, almost 7% a year. Compounded. Now, they might do it in one year, but they never follow it up the year after that, the year after that, seven years in a row. Now, again, that's average. In many cases, the growth rates were much higher, and then there were also growth rates much lower and think companies going bankrupt. This was the beginning of capitalism. So everybody's doing this for the first time. So a lot of people are making money hand over fist. A lot of people are going broke, losing their butts. But you know, also over that same time period, not only did the economy grow by 6.8%, but prices fell 3% a year. That means over seven years, prices fell over 20%. I mean, if you're growing at almost 7% and prices are falling 3%, That's fantastic. That's almost like paradise. 
Now, this is where we get into the tricky parts of inflation and how it can be really bad, even if it's a small number. Now, the interesting part about that period is that that was the beginning of the nation. So technology was very primitive, okay? So most of those gains and you know that we were having with the prices falling had to do mostly with infrastructure. They were building out the railroads and so forth, building out the telegraphs and the, and the transportation infrastructure. And the more they did that, the lower the prices got because it was cheaper and cheaper and cheaper to transport these goods. But if you move past that into the 60s and 70s and 80s when the technology really started to take off, I mean, that was amazing. Technology then, you know, we, we've gone from technology where we're working with pickaxes to where we're putting somebody on the moon to where, you know, the size of the computer that was on the shuttle now fits in your pocket. And the funny part is, in those years of 70s, 80s, 90s, and all the way up till today, inflation has been positive. So think about that. The Fed has a 2% target inflation rate. Now, if technology has been able to decrease their cost to the consumer by 50%, then that means prices would have to rise 52% to realize a 2% increase in inflation. Think about that. They're not just stealing 2% from you. They're stealing 52% from you because they stole all those cost savings that were coming to you as a realization of improvements in productivity and technology. Now, you can see truly how evil inflation is. And for all these economists that think deflation is such a bad thing, deflation is a good thing, as I've shown. It increases your purchasing power. The only time it was a bad thing was when the government did it. And that was when we were on the gold standard. And that's what caused the Great Depression. It would seem that everything wrong with the structure of our economy is the government part of it. So what should we do? Well, here's where we need to get to. We need to get rid of the Fed. We need to get rid of, and if not, uh, and we need to get our own private money, not gold base. So many people will say, well, we ought to base it on gold. Well, I tell you what, if you look around, that's even worse than regular fiat money because there's more, there's more paper value of gold trading then there is physical gold in the world by about 10 times or more. Okay, so that's already off the rails. If you want to have a solid currency, you got to know how much there is out there in circulation. You got to know how it works, and it cannot be subject to the whims of any politician, whether they work in the government or whether they're a central banker. I would think the ideal solution would be a cryptocurrency, a private cryptocurrency, and then. Uh, it would grow just by maybe the GDP or something like that. But it would never be something where anyone could artificially stimulate the supply of a currency. The amount of currency out there is the amount of currency out there. And it grows programmatically based upon the GDP or something like that. And that's the way that should work. And that would be the best solution because the government has proven beyond all doubt it cannot manage the economy. All it has done is artificially suppressed the interest rates, artificially inflated the prices in the real estate market, and they've artificially increased all prices when they decided to print money. They increased the money supply and then spent a whole bunch of money. 
And when you're the United States, when you engage in inflation, you don't just infect yourself, you infect the rest of the world. So when Kareem Jean-Pierre is out there saying, well, it's a global problem. Yeah, it's a global problem because we're the United States and we're the reserve currency. Over 100 countries peg their currency to our currency directly. All the rest of them indirectly peg their currency because they want to export to our country. And if you want to export, export goods to the country, you got to do that at favorable exchange rates, which means you have an indirect peg on the dollar. Incidentally, because we're the reserve currency, our currency has strengthened because the inflation that we caused in those other countries has caused a flight to safety. What do you mean flight to safety? Well, I mean flight to the world reserve currency, the U.S. dollar. That's a flight to safety. Just like U.S. investors start pouring their money into bonds when stocks become risky, international and foreign banks start pouring their money into the U.S. when their countries start experiencing economic turmoil. And that's all I have for tonight. For Senequanon News, I'm Persona Non Grata. Please spay and neuter your politicians. Good night.